into the theology pit. Theology pit. You're falling in the theology pit. everyone welcome back to the theology pit this is theology out of pittsburgh and not like a bottomless pit because you know what we say when you fall into a bottomless pit you die of dehydration i'm your host samson kovach and here at the theology pit we are in the middle or maybe towards the end because i'm really not sure where the end of this is going to be of our series on the bible and this is sort of part two of our old testament uh look that we're doing uh in the last podcast there's a lot of information that i I couldn't get to, so I had to stop it in the middle. And the Old Testament, well, it has a lot of information in it. So, of course, we're going to have a lot of information to talk about. So, this is uh, part two. So, if you're just kind of jumping in here new and you're going to say, wait, what's he talking about? You might want to go back and listen to uh, part 14 before you move on to part 15 here. But hey, if you've been on the. you know, on the ride with us this whole time. Thank you very much, number one. And number two, uh, this will be sort of the exciting conclusion of the uh, the Old Testament uh, canonization and moving into inspiration. This is very important whenever we look at why we consider the Bible to be inspired, especially from a uh, prophetic Uh, standpoint. Because a lot of people say when it comes to prophecy, well, you know what? I mean, anybody can prophesy and make it happen or anybody can do it within writing. Uh, I can write something down and just because I wrote it down doesn't make it so. I mean, I I, I could say that, hey, I'm going to predict that the Twin Towers will be destroyed in New York in 2001. And see, I wrote it down here. Look at it. I wrote this down in 1998 or in 1991 or 1981 or something. Well, that doesn't make it so. That's just saying that, hey, I'm doing that. Unless there was a way to actually prove that I wrote it beforehand, there's really no way... um, to make that claim. And how can we be sure that I wrote it beforehand and that it wasn't something that was an inner pollution, that somebody got a hold of it and they wanted it to say what it said. And therefore they went back and they changed it and made it look like that's what was always there. Um, You need to be able to compare things. When people say that the Bible was, was changed over time, well, you have to have those changes in order to make that assertion. So where are you getting the changes from in order to say that? Because, hey, we'd like to take a look at them. You know, if if what we have that was written, you know, if what we have written down now isn't what was written then, well, then we would throw that out and we would go back and try and find out, hey, what was written then? So if you have any of that evidence that we've never looked at, please bring it to us. So when we last left off here, we were talking about the canonization of the Old Testament, and we were looking at the Apocrypha in particular, and the Deuter- also known as the Deuterocanonical books of the Roman Catholics, and we were kind of on the dissent aspect of it, and why Protestants disagree with it, and the reason being is because, well, the Jewish people disagreed with it, and the majority of the church disagreed with it. It wasn't until the knee-jerk reaction of the Council of Trent because of Martin Luther that really set in stone this idea of a second canon, these deuterocanonical works. And even at that outset, um, these books were known, obviously, if they were, um, you know, contested, but, you know, they weren't always, um, 
they weren't always, I don't want to say accepted, but I guess that's a good enough word. They weren't always accepted. They weren't always looked at as authoritative. They were looked at as important. And I believe that they're important. I, I think that everybody should read them. Uh, I think it's important to know what they are, um, but it's important to read them for an understanding if you're if you're studying the Bible, if you want to know the history of Christianity, if you want to understand where the Bible came from, it's good to read the apocryphal works. And if you're a Protestant and you don't want to go out and pick up a Catholic Bible, um, the New Revised Standard Version or the Revised Standard Version has copies of them with the Apocrypha in them. So you can go out and buy a copy of that. And I think that it would have more of the works than what the Roman Catholics consider um, in there, in their Deuterocanonical. But the Roman Catholics books are fine. Um, my New Jerusalem Bible, I, I think it's fine to read it. It reads nicely. I don't um, have that much of a problem with it. But um, during the time of Martin Luther, and you're looking at the time period between the early 1500s to the mid-1500s, we'll just give it give it that 1500 to 1550. That seems like a nice ballpark um, number for us to hold on to. Um, Cardinal, and I don't even know how to pronounce this name, uh, Sejitan or Kajitan, I want to say Kajitan, C-A-J-E-T-A-N, however you pronounce that, not real sure, please forgive me on that one. He was an opponent of Luther, and he wrote a commentary on all the books of the Bible and even dedicated it to the Pope, saying that the Apocrypha was not canonical in the quote-unquote strict sense. Therefore, the deuterocanonical books were not included in his commentary. So even at the time of Martin Luther, you know, rejecting them, they would say, look, you know, they're important and they should be accepted because Rome says that they should be accepted. We get that. But we do recognize that there is a difference. Um, in the uh uh, Glossia Ordinaria, um, the standard commentary of the late Middle Ages, studied and respected by all of the church, says that the church did not believe the deuterocanonical books were inspired. Okay, so here's the preference to this uh, to this glossary. The canonical books have been brought and through the dictation of the Holy Spirit. It is not known, however at which time or by which authors the non-canonical or apocryphal books were produced. Since nevertheless, they are very good and useful, and nothing is found in them which contradicts the canonical books, the church reads them and permits them to be read by the faithful for devotion and, uh, for edifi- and edification. Their authority, however, is not considered adequate for prove for proving those things which come into doubt or con- contention or for confirming the authority of ecclesiastical dogma the blessed jerome states in his prologue to judith and to the books of solomon but the canonical books are of such authority that whatever is contained therein is held to be true firmly and indisputably and likewise, that which is clearly demonstrated from them. So, even at the time of, we could say this, this 
counter-reformation, this restructuring reformation, this internal reformation that the Catholic Church was going through at the end of the 15th century, beginning of the 16th century, when Martin Luther came on the scene. This is the type of stuff that was being um, contested and talked about. And this had a lot to do with the movement of the humanists and the scholastics. The battle cry of ad fonts to the sources, to the to the fountainhead. Um, the people wanted to get smarter. And, and also, you know, a couple hundred years before this, you had um, the invasion of Islam, which pushed... Um, through uh, not only um, Northern Africa, where a lot of the really good manuscripts were, and pushed them up northward, uh, but then in the, was, was it the 12th century, early 12th century, um, with their sack of uh, Constantinople and the um, eastern uh, side of the Mediterranean Sea, and pushing all of the um, literature, all the you know good scholarly literature west, in towards um, in towards Rome, that this this renaissance of learning uh, was taking place. So this was a consideration of you know not not only with the with the Bible do we have the right books do we have good books but with just general knowledge uh, you know by itself do we have good books do we have right books because at this time you know when all this big push is happening that's when it gets pushed into um, the uh, what was it French Swiss um, area where you had um, you know the the first um, schools being set up to teach Koine Greek because these people that had these good Greek manuscripts that that spoke Koine Greek were able to then set up and teach so it's a different mindset than what was previously had and Martin Luther just kind of took it one step further and while it was not outside of the vein of thinking that was going on at the time, it's because of his abrasiveness and his boldness, and he just pushed so hard so fast that the knee-jerk reaction was, of course, to reject uh, what was what was taking place uh, within Protestantism. Um, so, the arguments for the exclusion, specifically, of the apocryphal works yeah, here's um, a couple different points. Uh, the first one is that the New Testament never directly quotes from any apocryphal book as scripture with the common designation, it is written. So even though there are aspects of, of books that are quoted, um, like for example, you know, the, the book of Enoch that, you know, we looked at or that we made mention of earlier, um, just because that was mentioned doesn't mean that it was respected as scripture because it does not say it is written. And when it says it is written, it is giving authority, uh, to that and saying that what I am saying I am saying based on an authority that is not of my own. It is an authority that has come from elsewhere. And most notably, it has come from God. And when you're talking about the Old Testament in the first century, and you're saying, haven't you read? Or it is written. Then that gives authority to it. And this is why people were so shocked at the way that Jesus spoke, because they said he speaks as one who has authority. And he was not just saying all the time, you know, as it is written, uh, even though he did say as it is written a, a lot, uh, giving credibility to those books of the Old Testament, 
as well as his own um, uh, you know place as as a prophet of the time and as being you know God incarnate but he would also say you know you've heard it said this but I say unto you um, so the fact that none of the apocryphal works none of the deuterocanonical works have a designation of it is written in any of the New Testament works that are accepted by the church as a whole that that is extremely problematic um, often when people claim that it does the references are a stretch to get them to match the deuterocanonical books or they are at best mere allusions uh, that evidence um, knowledge of the deuterocanonical books. If there are genuine allusions to certain deuterocanonical books, this does not mean that the writer believed them to be inspired any more than Paul's quotation of Eratus. Okay, in Acts, that means that he believes uh, that he believed uh, Phenomena was part of the canon. Also, where Jude quotes the Book of Enoch. Um, there's a, um, a section in the New Testament in the earliest gospel, uh, the gospel of Mark, um, where Jesus is in the, um, in the temple, I believe, and he's teaching on a Sabbath and there's a man that comes in there with a withering hand and, you know, everybody's watching him because he's already been irritating the Pharisees and Sadducees and they're watching him to see, is he going to heal this man on the Sabbath? Because if he does, he's breaking the law because he's doing work on the Sabbath day. And he knows that they're thinking this. I mean, you honestly, you don't have to be a mind reader or a prophet to know the way that legalistic people think. Okay. It, it would be like, being in a group of people that are Puritans, okay? And you know that they're Puritans, all right? And you're at a place where it is possible for you to have a beer. And, you know, they have heard stories that you drink beer. Now, if you're in that, you're going to feel that tension. You're going to feel all the eyes on you, you know, if you go and have a beer, and if it looks like you're going to go and do that, you know, you're going to go and grab a bottle and open up the beer and they're watching you intently to see if you do. And you walk over and you grab a hold of a beer and you're getting ready to open it. Okay. You don't have to be a prophet to know what they're thinking. You don't have to be a prophet to know that they're judging you in this aspect. So Jesus on the Sabbath day, who's known, he, he's known for healing people. And he just said, uh, before then, um, you know, that really irritated, I believe it was, it was right before then, um, you know, the, the man who was, um, uh, crippled, who, uh, his friends climbed up on the, uh, top of the roof of where Jesus was teaching, opened the roof up and let the man down into it. And Jesus said, you know, um, your, your sins are forgiven. And, and they're like, well, who can forgive sins but God alone? And he said, well, what's easier to do? Say to him, your sins are forgiven or, or you know, stand up, pick up your bed and walk. Uh, because they were under the impression in that, that, you know, the man was um, a cripple because of a sin that either he had committed or his parents had committed, even though that may not be true, that, you know, your sins do not 
this is not something that comes from you know the result of you sinning or of your parents sinning, but that was the impression that the people had at the time. And so he knew that also, and he was dispelling that by saying your sins are forgiven because they were thinking that anyways. Because he might have healed them and they might think, well, he was still a sinner and, you know, he had no, you know, no right to be healed or something like that. So they're already irritated at him for doing that, for, for taking a prerogative that is only reserved for God alone, the forgiveness of sins. Okay. And now he's, here he is on the Sabbath day and they're waiting for him to break the law on the Sabbath day by healing this man. So he looks around at them sternly and he knows that that's what, what they're watching for. And he says to them, what is better to do on the Sabbath day, to heal or to kill? Which sounds like a really, really strange way of putting it. I mean, we're, we may be so used to hearing that, that story or, to, or for hearing that phrase that it just kind of goes over our head, you know? It just, it's, it's like, it's a no-brainer to us, you know? What would be, what would be better for me to do? You know, in my Puritan scenario, if I said, what would be better for me to do? Drink this beer or kill somebody? What? Why, why is that even a thing? Okay, people would say, you really went to an extreme there. That's, I mean, that escalated quickly. Why, there's no middle ground? So what's better to do to heal or to kill? That makes no sense. Okay. And then, you know, he looks around at them sternly, it says in the, you know, in, in the story there, after he says to heal or to kill. And he then heals the man, and that's when they plot that they're going to put him to death. Okay, at that, that's the thing that makes them mad. Not his prerogative beforehand of saying that he has the same authority as God to forgive sin, but him healing someone. But it's not him healing someone that makes them so mad, okay? Because what he is saying in front of everybody is that they are murderers. And, and, and where am I getting that from? Why am I making this leap? Here's where it comes from. In the book of Maccabees, you have um, the, the, the family of Maccabees, the, the, the generals, the people that are taking over, they are fighting the Greeks in order to reclaim their temple, in order to take back their land, in order to have their own sovereignty. Okay, Now, whenever you're fighting a war, whenever you're in a battle, you are going to go after the weakness of your opponent. To not exploit their weakness is to not truly engage in war in order to win it. You want to explore, exploit their weakness. It's like if we were fighting you know, Muslims or we're fighting Islam, what we would want to be doing is using bullets that were you know, coated with pork, something that was unclean, to let them know that even in their belief system, not only will we kill you, but we will send you to hell because you will be injected with something unclean. Um, I've heard stories of other armies doing this, that, you know, that they would um, have Muslim uh, captives and they would bring them out um, to the point where the Muslim army could see them, you know, through you know, telescope or whatever and could see them clearly. And they would have these um, uh, captives and they would bring out a pig, they would slaughter it, they would then dip their arrows in the blood of the pigs and shoot them through. 
and leave the bodies. And that stopped the army from advancing because everyone's like, whoa, we, okay, fighting and dying for jihad is one thing. But, you know, if there is a good chance that no matter what, I'm going to be infused with pig blood when I die, that that's what's happening. I'm not taking that chance. It's very demoralizing. Okay. So that in a way is what is happening um, at this time with the Maccabees. You see the Greeks, the Ptolemies are saying, all right, look, we know that the Jews do not do work on the Sabbath day. They're not going to fight back. So what they would do is they would wait until Saturday to attack them. They would find them, they would round them up, and they would kill them. And in in the book of Maccabees, there's examples of this happening to where the people will not fight back and they say, we are not going to profane the law of our God. We would proudly rather die and go to heaven than... um, you know, then, then, then the break the Sabbath day and the, to break the law on the Sabbath day by doing work. And I mean, you, you have examples in first and second Maccabees of stuff like this happening. I think in second Maccabees, the story of the seven brothers, which really points towards the resurrection and, and what's going on, um, you know, with them being, um, you know, killed and filleted alive. Um, but what's going on in, in first Maccabees with this, with this account is that, um, they start saying, you know what, if we don't fight back, then we are, we're just going to die out sooner because, you know, it's, it's going to happen. So they get with the religious leaders at the time who we spoke about um, in the last podcast that split into three different groups. And, you know, they said, okay, if somebody is attacking you on the Sabbath day, you're allowed to fight back. Okay. Now, the success of the Maccabean revolt uh, gets them there, uh, gets the temple back, and they have to reconsecrate the temple, of course, and they only have enough oil for one day, but it miraculously lasts for seven days. That is needed for cleansing the temple, or eight days. That's needed for cleansing the temple and rededicating it back to God. And the celebration of this accomplishment and the remembrance of it is celebrated every year by the Jewish people from that time until now, and it's called Hanukkah. It's the festival of lights. And that is to remember that every Jewish person celebrates that. Every Jewish person knows that story. They know that story and they know that aspect of that story. They know that they were able to fight. So when Jesus says to them, what is better to do to heal or to kill? He's saying to them, You, descendants of these people, you Pharisees and Sadducees, you say that God's law can be changed to kill people. I say God's law can be changed to heal people. He just called them all murderers using a story that is found in the Apocrypha and an understanding that's found in the Apocrypha, the history of the people. It's a pretty powerful uh, argument for it being in there. But what he doesn't do is say, thus saith the Lord, or it is written that you said it's okay to kill. He didn't. He used it as a historical understanding, not as a scripturally authoritative understanding, which is the big difference. So as powerful as that story is and as powerful as that image is, it does not mean that it should be included just because it's part of the history and Jesus 
spoke about it and 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 used it very directly and it's it's something that mark records um you know under um the authority of peter um and peter being a jew knew that very very well and knew that that had to be the moment that was what they were thinking that is uh what uh, it really caused them to uh, get mad because um now they are losing credibility. They are losing power. They're losing influence because of this, this really nobody, this Galilean, this, this, you know, uh, bastard of Mary, this son of Mary, you know, this, this uh, lowest of the low, you know, what, what good ever comes out of Galilee? Nothing comes good comes from Galilee. Like it's, it's, you know, they're, they're awful, you know, people out there and they're, they're the lowest of the low. Okay, so another argument for the exclusion of um, the Deuterocanonical works is the Palestinian Jews, those who lived in Israel, never accepted the Deuterocanonical books. This was the key argument for the Reformers, the basic idea that if Christ did not recognize them, they are not canonical. Josephus, born in 37 AD, a primary Jewish historian, plainly writes about the accepted canon of his day, which is the same as the current Protestant canon. He makes no mention of the Apocrypha and does not hint at a certain controversy in in his day. The Talmud makes a similar point. All right, and we went over this the in, in the last podcast, after the latter prophets Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, the Holy Spirit departed from Israel. That's what he wrote. Um that's what the uh, the Talmud states. Uh, Philo, who lived in Alexandria in the first century, did not accept the Apocrypha either. Um so and, and and you know we I, we touched on this in the last episode, so I'm not going to you know, get more into it. But um, I just want to say that you know because they may have viewed the Jews as accursed, that does not mean that what they thought about the scriptures should be thrown out. That's a genetic fallacy. That's saying that where something comes from is what negates it rather than you know what it actually is. Um, from a Protestant perspective, there are significant theological and historical inaccuracies in the deuterocanonical books. For example, works-based salvation in Tobit, uh, cruelty in Sirach, uh, the doctrine of purgatory in 2 Maccabees. Um, what is more, these books have historical errors. It is claimed that Tobit was alive when the Assyrians conquered Israel in 722 BC, and also when Jeroboam uh, revolted against Judah in 931 BC. Which would make him at least 209 years old, yet according to the account, he died when he was only 158 years old. The book of Judith speaks of Nebuchadnezzar's reigning in Nineveh instead of in Babylon. So they would say, look, there's, you know, all kinds of problems here. All right. And I know people want to say, well, the Old Testament has historical problems. Okay. You may be making that claim based on um, natural history, but this is a claim that is being based on the history within itself. Okay, you may say that um, you know, like people said, "Oh, you know, King David never existed," and everybody argued about that until it was like what the 1980s or 90s until they found evidence of the Davidic kingdom. Like within archaeology, you know, proving the Bible right once again. Um, the fact that when wars were fought in the Middle East, that the Old Testament was used, and they looked at the battles that took place because the topography is still there. You know, it's it's still it, you know it's written as a historical narrative, and wars and um, uh, 
battles were able to be won uh, based on the techniques that were derived from um, the Bible strategies, uh, biblical strategies of the Old Testament. So that's different than um, it being historically unreliable within itself. Um, that that is actually what's called a contradiction, um, not. Um, you know what a lot of uh, uh, atheists and anti-theists and non-Christians uh, like to say are are contradictions. Like you know, um, between the Gospels, where you know one Gospel says that there were two angels at the tomb, and one says that there was one angel, and they would say that's a contradiction. It's like no, it's not a contradiction. So the Apocrypha itself attests to the absence of prophets in its own time. 1 Maccabees 9, uh, 27. Thus there was great distress in Israel, such as not been since the time that the prophets ceased to appear among them. So no prophets, you can't have prophecy. You can't have it, you know, things like that written down. Also, the deuterocanonical books were in dispute for so long and held to secondary status that it would be problematic to say that they contained the voice of God since most since most people did not recognize them to be his voice. In the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 27, my sheep listen to my voice and I know them and they follow me. So when you have, the, if you remember back to the New Testament when we were discussing it and we were saying that, you know, the church as a whole had to look at these books and were just accepting them as scripture and the ones that they weren't accepting as scripture just kind of fell by the wayside because you would ask them, well, is the scripture? Well, no, but, you know, it's something good to read, like, you know, Shepherd of Hermes or something like that, or, you know, Clement's work or, um, you know, something like that. But they didn't view them as scripture, and especially during um, all the times of persecution within that first, you know, 200-year uh, time span, with the worst being the Diocletian persecutions, where you had the traitores, the ones who turned over papers. You would want to know pretty definitively what books were considered to be the word of God if you were going to die for them. And that was a big deal at that time. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. So we spent a lot of time talking about, um, you know, what the people of the church people of God thought about the Old Testament, okay? And we've talked about, you know, how can we be sure that what we have today is what was written in the first century as far as the New Testament is is gone? But the New Testament, quoting the Old Testament, how can we be sure that what we have today is what they were referring to back then? I mean, could it have changed? Can we do the same thing with the Old Testament that was done with the New Testament? I mean, this is a big, and like I said, this is much bigger. Um, the uh, New Testament, you know, time period that it was written in, depending, I, like I said before, depending on how you set the timeline up, can be anywhere between a 60-year 
period. Okay, Be- between um, you know the writings of Paul and you know being the the earliest uh, Christian. Um, writings in the new testament and the book of revelation being the late so you could have a big 60 year period i would i would shorten that to less but but still it's nowhere near the thousand year period of writing and then um from that period on uh to today that's a much bigger uh thing to kind of I don't know, bigger, bigger thing to, to, to bite off, to chew here. And it's a little bit different in the way that people, um, you know, un- understood, uh, transmission of scripture in the old Testament itself. You do have this period of the, um, books of the old Testament being lost in a way, uh, especially through exile, um, and, and just, you know, kind of, kind of separated, um, Ezra uh, was, you know, gathering and collecting and bringing back um, the scrolls of the Old Testament at the time during the Old Testament period. He's a very important figure in that. At the same time, Nehemiah is rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem and, you know, doing the whole uh, rebuilding aspect of um, of the temple uh, for the people and the people are kind of you know at, in a time getting back to it is their ad fonts it is there to the sources it is their battle cry period this is where you start getting these religious teachers um, of the law because they are you know preserving this um, the uh, Pharisees were really the the teachers of the law in the time of Christ. Um, they held that that is the thing that we should hold to, the static thing. Where the Sadducees uh, were very much with the, uh, about the temple practices and were around that, and that's why when the temple was destroyed, um, the Sadducees really disappeared. Where the Pharisees um, kind of took over and flourished because they stuck with the the teaching and moved that. So modern day Jews and modern day Israel's would be considered direct descendants. Uh, theologically, of the uh, Pharisees and not of the Sadducees, uh, which is why they look for you know a a, a resurrection. Um, but the Old Testament manuscripts that we have um, are from um, a, a couple different places. We have the Ben Asser family, and these are ninth and tenth century uh, manuscripts, and they are. Um, from a Masoretic family of scribes, and this would include um, Cairo Codex that was written in 950 AD, uh, the Leningrad Codex, Codex P, which was written in 916, um, and that would be um, the, the text... Um, Behind, um, it says behind BHS. I'm gonna have to look at what that is, um, but that would be, I guess, our, our the the no, not the Ben Asser family, but anyways. Then you have the Aleppo manuscripts, Codex A, that was written before 940. Okay, so you're looking at 10th century. Okay, now that means that from the time Genesis was written, okay, if if you look at that, if you take our earliest dating of 1400. All right, BC to you know nine sixteen. Okay, that is a nineteen hundred year uh, difference, correct? Or no? Wait, no more than that. That would be a twenty five hundred year difference. That's a that's a, a big amount of time. I mean, that's a, that's a long uh, long time period here. I think that I did. Did I do that math right? 
I think I may have. Um, but that's 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 a long time period. So how can we be sure that what we have now, not only is it the same as what was written in the 10th century, but that that copy that we have is reliable 25 centuries beforehand. That is, I mean, it's a huge chasm, okay? And I think it's, it. if this is alone what we had, it's a big, big problem. We would be able to say, um, from the quotes of the New Testament, okay, well, these parts of the quotes of the New Testament, we can say what they had in the first century pretty definitively, but that would still be a 1,400-year gap between what they had. So we have to turn to the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of it that was um, written down in between uh, 300 and 150 BC. Okay. The earliest copy of that that we have, though, is 400 AD. So, in as well as it matches up with the New Testament, we can get an understanding that, okay, since the New Testament quotes the Septuagint a lot, that wording, we can pretty much say if if what we have recorded in the New Testament matches up pretty well with the Septuagint, that the earliest copy we have is, you know, 300 years after uh, what we have from the New Testament, but it claims to have been written 700 years before that. Um if that matches up, then we can get a pretty good idea of what they may have had, um, you know, in the first, like, you know, 100 BC, like around then. And it just gives us a rough idea, too. It's not something that, you know, we can really sink our teeth into and we can use as a huge proof text, okay? The Targums are aromatic paraphrases of the Old Testament, all right, and that's after 200 AD. So this would get us to the spirit of what was written. This would be our, what would be considered our ipsissima vox, the, the voice of God, the, the meaning, the paraphrase. This is uh, more along the lines of, you know, if we had no Bible except for the message Bible, which is a paraphrase, okay? It's somebody's opinion of, of what, you know, the Bible says of, of, of what the, um, the New Testament should say of what the Bible would say. That's paraphrase. Okay. We don't look at that as proof text. We don't look at that as study. We look at the message Bible for what it is. Okay. So that's what the Targums are, but it gives us an idea of the intent. Okay. So we can kind of put that in as another, another piece of the puzzle there. And all of this mounts up. Remember, this is all evidence that we're accumulating here, but our biggest, thing that we have is the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in 1948. And we talked about them in the last podcast and that they contained copies or portions of every book of the Old Testament except for Esther. All right. And, and, you know, I kind of mentioned why, you know, Esther might not be in there. The one interesting fact about, about Esther that God has not mentioned, but there is a full copy of Isaiah Okay, the book of Isaiah dating back to between 135 and 200 BC. Now, if you're listening to this and you're familiar with the book of Isaiah, uh, you know, a light bulb's going off in your head. That is a really, really important book for Christians. Okay, super important book, especially when it comes to prophecy, and we'll get to that in a little bit. All right, so when you kind of add this up and and you look at this stuff... 
what they were able to do with these Dead Sea Scrolls that go back before the time of Christ is they were able to compare them to the Codex Leningrad. And the Codex Leningrad was the earliest Old Testament manuscript copy that we had from 916, okay, AD, 916 AD, all right? And they were able to compare the book of Isaiah between those two things. And I think they found two errors between the wording, you know, it, it, within those two actual errors where it was the misspelling of someone's name or of a proper name. That's it. That is a huge indication of the carefulness of the transmission of scripture when it comes to the Old Testament. You have to remember, this is different than other books. The Bible is different than other books because whether you believe it's the word of God or not, you have to respect this fact that people do believe that it's the word of God. And because they believe that it's the word of God, they are extremely careful with it and they love it. They want to preserve it. They take more attention and more detail than they would with anything else. Okay. So whether or not you agree that it's the word of God, you have to agree that other people did. And these people did to the point where something, a copy, a physical, tangible copy that you can go and look at of the book of Isaiah and of the Old Testament that dates before the time of Christ, a couple hundred years before the time of Christ, is, in fact, so well copied and transmitted that 1,200 years later, it's almost perfect in the copy that we have. And Isaiah was a book that was written roughly 70 BC. So we can trust, if we use this type of logic, we can trust that the people preserved the word of God from the time of Isaiah to the time of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay? 500 years. If and that's not a far stretch to say. I don't think I don't think that I'm I'm talking out out of school by saying it is a very high degree of plausibility that we can be confident in that if we look at 1200 years from one point to the next the copying was so good. Okay, the transmission was so good. So the transmission before 300 BC, very little is known about the transmission of the Old Testament at that time. We have no manuscripts from that period, okay? Uh, before, and when I say before 300 BC, that means from 300 BC to 1400 BC. You have to remember we're kind of counting backwards in that. But prior to 350 BC, Paleo-Hebrew was used rather than square script, and we do know that. So, after 100 BC, we have the Palestine, the Palestine manuscripts, which were Sumerian, uh, and they had the Pentateuch, the Proto-Masoretic text, and the Qumran text. The Babylonian, which were pro the Proto-Masoretic text, and the Egyptian, which were the Septuagint. These are our three big ones, okay? And this is, you know, after 100 BC. So go from 100 BC to the year zero, okay? Think about it in that time period. That is what we are looking at for Old Testament. 
Okay, from 100 BC to 400 AD, the time of Christ, the apostles, the church fathers, the Proto-Masoretic text is the standardized first century. Okay, manuscript. This is what they were using. This is what they were saying the Old Testament was, and what they're saying that the Old Testament was is at least good 100 years before the time of Christ. Okay, to this point. And then after from 500 AD to 1000 AD, that is what is considered the Masoretic text. And our copy of the Old Testament is based upon um, these. Uh, um, uh, what am I going to say? Manuscripts, the, this, this evidence, this, you know. When you want a copy of the Old Testament, this is what you would generally go to, okay? This Masoretic text, all right? Now, the Masorites were a, um, a group of scribes between 500 and 1100 AD that um, carried on the meticulous transmission process of the standardized text from 500 to 1100 AD. And what I mean by that is that they had certain rules that they followed when they were transmitting, when they were making copies of the Old Testament. It wasn't like with the New Testament, okay, where, you know, you may have had um, you know, people that were just writing that may not have been uh, trained scribes, you know, people that were, the, you know, it was it was a different philosophy, okay? And when we get into hermeneutics, we'll get an understanding why, especially when we look at um, legalism and we look at letterism in particular. And letterism is the belief of the interpretation that even the shape of the letter has a special meaning that God is trying to convey to us, okay? It, it, it's, it's a particular type of Bible interpretation, and we'll, we'll talk about that later. But they, the, here are some of the rules that the Masoretes followed, okay, in preserving the Old Testament. That only parchments from clean animals could be used. So you don't have. Remember when we talked about the whole thing with the with the resh and the uh, and the the tittle um, that there would be like a, a possible possibility for a smudge or something like that to occur and to be difficult to read. They said no. Only parchments from clean animals could be used. Not only ceremonial, ceremonially clean, but generally ceremonially clean animals were also animals without spot or blemish. Okay, so the vellum that they were using, the parchments that they were using, the type of leather that they were using, had to be from from clean animals. Okay, each column of the scroll was to have no fewer than forty-eight and no more than 60 lines, okay? And the breadth of each of those lines consists of 30 letters, okay? Let me, let me say that again, all right? Each column on the scroll, okay, couldn't have less than 48 or more than 60 lines. So any scroll that you looked at, any column that you looked at while you're unrolling the scroll would have each, the column in it would have 48 to 60 lines. You could count down each line and, and find a number in between those those two numbers. And if you counted from, of course it, it went right to left. If you counted from right to left, there would be 30 letters. And again, there were not um, uh, 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 spaces between the words, okay? So each, uh, the word of each letter would be one right next to the other. And so there would be 30 exactly, okay? That's how standardized this was. So you could, at a glance, 
go through a scroll. And if you knew it really, really well, you could glance through it and the way that your eyes fell on the letters, you would be able to see if something was wrong immediately with a particular scroll or a particular passage or a particular um, uh, column. Okay, If something was wrong with that book, if there was an error in there, you would immediately be able to, to nail it. Okay, the ink that was to be used was to be black and prepared according to a specific recipe. Now, that's something that we don't think about today because we have a lot of standardization, you know, standardized um, size of uh, paper as well as standardized type of ink and different kinds of ink, of course, and different kinds of pen. But you know, when you get a big ballpoint pen, you expect a certain type of standardization to come from it. All right. They had a particular recipe for this. Okay. So, you know, the ink would only smudge so much or it would only, you know, it, it, it would have a certain consistency to it for when you're writing so that it was uniform as possible. No word or letter was to be written from memory. What you would be doing is you would have um, generally something that would look like a little pointer, okay? And in one hand, it would be on the manuscript that you are copying from, and it would be pointed towards what letter you were copying. And you would look at that letter, and then you would go over to your manuscript, and you would make that letter, and then you would move that to the left one or you know wherever it was going, maybe to the next column, to the next letter and put it on there and look at that letter. And then your hand, your other hand would copy that letter. OK, it's that type of uh, meticulousness. You would not be doing it from memory. There was to be a space of a hair between each consonant and the space of a consonant between each word. Okay, so I guess there were spaces, but it was not um, spaced to the way that we're thinking of it. Okay. So you had these these spaces where if if you were looking at it and you weren't sure what exactly you're reading because of breath marks and things like that and it you know might look all run together for you but that was that was the the detail that was used okay space of a hair between each consonant and the space of a consonant between each word the scribe must wash himself entirely and be in full Jewish dress before beginning the copy of a scroll. Now, it says that, you know, the, 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 the soup makes the man. Okay, you know, even if you work for yourself, if you have a certain uniform or a certain way that you dress, um, that that gives you the sense in the air of of importance and professionalism. And so people would do that anyways. You know, um, if, if you own your own businesses, you don't have to wear a suit. But if you're a businessman, you do wear a suit because of what that conveys psychologically to yourself as well as to other people. This is the same thing. You're putting this on. I am doing God's work. I am working for God. This is serious. This is not something to take lightly. This is not something that, you know, I'm worried about people understanding what I'm writing later on. All I am going to do is be copying letter for letter, word for word directly. And I'm thinking of nothing else. My life is of nothing else at this point. All right, he could only write the name of Yahweh with a newly dipped brush, nor 
take notice of anyone, even a king, while writing the sacred name. So if a king came to visit, if somebody of importance came to visit, and he is writing the name of Yahweh, and it is written, there are four letters in the Tetragrammaton, okay? Uh, Y-H-W-H, depending, that's in the English, but, you know, that's four letters. And he starts to write that. He has his pointer on the first letter. He's writing it, and he's writing down that first letter, and a king walks in. And they're like, your king is here. He would not even look up. Go to the next one. He would write it. Go to the next one. He would, write, he would not stop with what he was doing to address anyone. Okay? This type of meticulousness and honor for the scrolls is what we have that makes us confident that what we have in the Old Testament we can be sure of. And if you notice, this is different type of proof and information than what I gave for the New Testament. The New Testament, I laid out a very logical, very Western uh, understanding of how we understand history and how we do things. Because when we look at the Bible as a book of man, that's what we're looking to, okay? And a lot of the New Testament is looked at as a a book of man when it comes to the transmission, even though the scribes loved it. They loved the New Testament. They loved it. They considered it the word of God. The the, the discipline. Some of the, the monks later on, I mean, adopted this style, this, this type of discipline in doing this. And you can see that in, you know, Greek manuscripts of the New Testament in the way that they wrote the, the name of Christ, that it would be abbreviated and maybe have like a line over it. And that was a certain practice that, you know, happened at a certain time. And so it's, it, that helps in paleography to date, um, the, that book of the New Testament. Um, but this this type of standardization, this type of meticulousness, this type of um, preservation that we have is something that then we can take from the uh, Old Testament and say they were doing this for hundreds of years. Now, just because the, the Masoretes were doing this, that doesn't mean that that was always done. This is 500 AD to 1100 AD, okay? I'm not saying that they always did it like this, but what I'm saying is that they did it this meticulously. What we have of theirs matches almost to a T, 100%, perfectly to what we found in the Dead Sea Scrolls that was that were obvious copies before the time of Christ. Okay? So we can be sure that what we have before the time of Christ is what we have at that period where we get our now copies of our Old Testament. So the 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 key of inspiration is, is is hinging on, okay, well, what does that say as compared to the New Testament? What do they say about each other? And this is where we're going to start moving from the Bible being a book of man to the Bible being a book of God. What would you expect from a book of God? And we're going we're to spend a little bit of time looking at some of the claims in Isaiah that God makes, okay? And these claims that he makes about himself. He has his own apologetic in there of, of, you know, test me type things. But we're going to look at how this lines up with the prophecies that are made 
in Isaiah and prophecies that are made elsewhere in the Old Testament and their fulfillment, not only in the New Testament, but also throughout history, throughout the intertestamental period, throughout the New Testament period, and throughout the uh, post-testament period, and even up into some of their fulfillment was not um, completed until the rise of Islam and the Islamic armies into you know the, the 11th century. And we're going to look at some of these things and just say, how is this possible? Just from a naturalistic human understanding, how is this possible unless there is divine intervention that happens? Okay. Proof of the existence of God, a transcendent God, a God that transcends time and space, interacts with mankind, says something, and it comes to pass. Something that is outside of the ability for man to write something down and say it. Because again, if we can prove, as we've been able to say, that what we have in the Old Testament was written before any of these acts took place, how can that be? And I'm not talking like Nostradamus type stuff where it's just very um, uh, subject to interpretation, okay? Or the things like... um, Oh, I forget who the 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 women were um, with the whole thing with the story of the three hundred and um, you know spoke for the gods and would go into trances and say you know what was it the king went to them and said um, you know I, I want to attack this this city you know or this this kingdom what will happen you know I, I, is this a good omen should I do that and they say uh, if if you do that a great kingdom will fall and him not thinking that it would be you know his kingdom that fell but you know their kingdom that fell it's nothing like that we're talking about prophecies that are extremely specific naming places extremely specific in its accounts, not, oh, okay, I can see how that sort of means this. We're not talking about that kind of stuff. We're talking about something that specifically says, this is what is going to occur. This is what is going to happen to this place, to these people. Okay, and then we're going to look through history to see, is that true? Did that happen? And if it did, what do you do with that? What do you do with that if you're somebody that doesn't believe in God? If you're somebody that doesn't believe in prophecy, in the supernatural, how do you deal with that? Because you can't say, well, it was written later. You can't make that argument. There's too much evidence right now between the New Testament, its reliability, and now the Old Testament with its reliability, the correspondence between the two, and through history. It gives you no room to say this is something that was injected later on. It's going to be a fun one in the next Theology Pit. Stay tuned. Hey, I really appreciate you listening to Theology Pit. Check us out on Facebook. Um, you can make donations, of course, Samson at SamsonStick.com. You can make donations at Patreon. Um, you can do uh, well, whatever you like. Uh, send me an email, Samson at SamsonStick.com. Let me know what you think of this stuff. If you have any ideas, any criticisms, share this with your friends. Uh, like and subscribe on iTunes. Uh, leave a note on iTunes. And now it's definitely time to close down the pit. Thank you. Thank you.